0: Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at The Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, managing editor Bridget Silverman, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is January 20th, 2023. It was a short week thanks to the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, but all that means is we crammed a week's worth of news into four days. First up is what seems like an ongoing problem, FDA communications. The agency announced on January 13th that it was looking into a potential safety signal related to the bivalent COVID-19 vaccine. But Sarah, you found that the agency left more questions than answers with the way it handled the situation.
1: Yeah, so what happened was um, fairly um, late in the afternoon on last Friday, January 13th, which was also a Friday before a long weekend, which I wasn't even thinking at the time, but people, you know, pointed out, it's just one of those times where, you know, people sometimes tune out fa- earlier um, than others, but um so Nobody story- reads
0: the Saturday newspaper. That's what I learned early on in my career. Right.
1: <laughs> so, uh, the Washington Post put out a story, um, you know, indicating that FDA and CDC had looked into a potential signal that the Pfizer and BioNTech's um, bivalent um, COVID vaccine was associated with an increased risk of stroke in people over 65. Um, But at this point, they've sort of concluded they have not seen such a concern in any other safety databases and so forth and feel like it's it's probably not a true clinical concern and you know no, nobody should change their you know their decision around vaccination over this but the thing that was sort of strange about it was um you know those that story contained like links to a, at least at first to a CDC update later there was an FDA post on their website but that took a lot longer um, they just sort of, the FDA never really, or the CDC never really publicly kind of announced this, right? They didn't, you know, like they might normally send a notice to our inboxes via a formal press release. Uh, You know, people have referred to what they put on their website kind of as a press announcement, but that's not really what it is technically, you know, they just sort of quietly updated their website, and if it wasn't for the Washington Post story, um... I, I don't know how many people would have been directed there or certainly not that quickly. Um, and then um, they didn't, you know, there's also other systems they have where, you know, they send out similar kinds of alerts and things to people in the health field, right? When they, they flag safety events and they didn't seem to kind of trigger any of those systems. And I think what I noticed pretty quickly, what happened from that is, um some of the like initial headlines covering the um, story seem to play up a bit more the like the stroke connection than I think if you read the totality of what FDA and CDC put out there, seem to be the case, you know, and that you know just given the anti-vaccine sentiment in this country, kind of can lead to a lot of easy like fear mongering and so forth, and you know, in talking to people about what FDA and CDC put out, um, some other issues were. You know, just the amount of information in what was on their websites made it difficult to kind of assess out, you know, like for people, like whether they kind of agreed or disagreed with CDC and FDA's assessment that this isn't really, doesn't seem to be a true safety concern. So while, you know, the Post had more numbers in their story and FDA um, and CDC kind of were able to confirm them for me and probably other reporters. I mean, they didn't put out, you know, how many strokes they identified, what was the sort of denominator of patients that they were looking at. Even still now, we don't sort of have a sense of, you know, what followed up um, after this. And what some of the subsequent analyses in VSD, we don't have a sense of, you know, they said they looked at a number of other safety, system, safety systems and they didn't find the same problem, but they don't, you know, sort of provide you with that same level of data to vet or check their work. Um <laughs> And I think that just led to a lot of frustration among people who look at this. And, the, um, you know, the post stories seem to indicate there was some tension between FDA or CDC about whether to even make this public at all. And a number of experts I talked to sort of did feel like if you look at a safety signal you do the sort of evaluations you need to do to figure out is it real or not, and you determine it's not real, it might, it may be a little bit strange to notify the public, right? Like, why are you notifying them of a non-event? Um, and I think that's where some of the confusion came in as to figuring out, like, how important this is or isn't. And, of course, um, the agencies say they are still continuing to evaluate this, so they're not, you know, 100% putting this to, to rest, that there's It's possible, you know, as they continue to look at this, they may decide this is more concerning than at at the moment they're saying. We do know that um, FDA is gonna talk about this um, and CDC at the advisory committee next week. That's where um, the FDA and the um, vaccine advisory committee are gonna think about like how to move forward with COVID vaccines and what our strategy is and what we need in the future. So um, the hope again, From, I think, people who really want to see the data is that we'll get much more specifics at this meeting. Um, They said, you know, if we don't, they'd be pretty concerned about what is going on with transparency or lack thereof. But, you know, I think I've been, you know, I think part of this is like you do get this media frustration when, you know, FDA isn't available to answer questions um, and so forth. And, you know, as I think one of the people I talked to said, you know, FDA sometimes like tries to control the narrative and they think by sort of limiting access or limiting the amount of information they put out, they can control what gets out there. And in some ways, like situations like this backfires um, and it just makes them look sort of like guilty in a sense (laughs) um, when maybe they're not guilty, right? If everything is fine, you know, why not just come really forward out there and straightforward and say, look, you know, we have these systems monitor safety, they worked as intended, you know, they triggered something for us, we did the initial analyses, Um, we just want to let everybody know. And then like, if you have a some kind of call with reporters or with experts in the field, you know, they can ask questions, FDA or CDC can kind of emphasize and make sure people understand it correctly. And I think through again, trying to just sort of like, brush this under the rug in some ways under a long weekend and not be helpful you almost end up getting worse headlines than if they had just been willing to be a little bit more you know transparent and helpful to people who are following the issue
2: it is a yeah. uh, catch-22 for uh, um the uh, the public health agencies you know sort of kind of the uh the more they do the right things for kind of uh, you know sort of trumpeting their uh their, uh, their surveillance activities I think it can sort of kind of draw more attention to uh you know the the idea that there are risks in these vaccines and you know they they believe in the vaccines and they don't want to uh, fuel any uh um anti-vaccine uh, um, sentiment uh, um in the uh, in the public so they're not uh they're not doing that but as you're saying this we're kind of trying to sort of kind of to um to control the narratives which kind of leads to uh people wondering what they're trying to hide and uh you know there's no uh there's no right solution uh, there. Uh, you know, Derek said uh, um, earlier that nobody reads the Saturday paper. I was actually thinking, like, is that a um, is that a thing these days? I mean, so kind of, everyone through so kind of at least uh, um, everyone by by I mean me, you know, gets most of their news by uh, um, you know the alerts that pop up on their phone. And you know, in this case, I don't think the Washington Post opted to send out an alert on uh, um, on that. So that's where kind of editorial judgment plays. was have kind of helped uh, you know reduce the. Um, the amount of transmission of that uh, particular bit of news that they had uh, um they had gotten. but uh, um you know I think there's always going to be attention to kind of how you uh, uh, how you deliver bad news i I think this this concept of the uh, you know putting it on your website is particularly disingenuous. I do not think there is any link on the FDA website to this um, you know page with the information about that uh, the stroke uh, um you know, investigation that they did. Uh, you know, it's obviously there, and they they sent us the uh, direct URL that you uh, included in your story, Sarah. But uh, if someone is like, I'm going to check the vaccine safety page every day to see if there are any updates to uh, you know inform my decision making. If you know you're a physician or uh, whatever, there's not even a link there, let alone kind of any kind of other standard push out of the of the, uh, um, of the activity that they uh, you know they're supposed to be doing uh, um, just to keep the public informed. So it's a um, it's a it's a tough. Uh, Decision as to how to proceed for uh, um, for any agency, and uh, you know we'll uh, we'll see if this will kind of generate some uh, some blowback in terms of any kind of uh, um, you know congressional uh, annoyance uh, or uh, um, you know kind of uh, petition from uh, um, from a group or or anything like that.
0: Well, and the weird and the 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 weird thing is, is that I mean, th- this has been going on. Th- this type of analysis has has been going on for years and years. I mean, we used, I mean, we get, you know, it, it happens with drugs all the time because that they're supposed to be looking for adverse events. That's the point of Sentinel and 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 uh, you know the vaccine safety data link and all these other systems that they have. I mean, we we would get. Uh, you know, because I, I remember because I've written about them, we would get drug safety updates where they say, like, we saw an unusual number of X happen with this drug. We're looking into it. And then, you know, a few months later or however long later, they would say, we don't we don't think there's an issue or, you know, they said, like, we ordered it. We told the companies to have another clinical to do another clinical trial to look at this. And, you know, and they update labels or they, you know, it they say it turned out to be nothing and you know that's the end of it i just, it, it it just seems odd that with in a case where I mean, it, it's not like what you were saying that where like you're trying to have hide bad news this was good news they figured it out it was nothing <laughs> they think it's nothing so you know I, uh, yeah it, it i just get conf- i get confused as to you know how how it all works
1: yeah. I mean, one thing I was trying to figure out when it seemed like, you know, the Washington Post implied there was sort of some disagreement between FDA and CDC as to if or when to sort of bring this to the public's attention was, OK, so is there sort of a standard operating procedure of what would trigger CDC and FDA in this case, since vaccines it's sort of a dual oversight, but in drugs, you know, it would just be more FDA like is there a some kind of threshold or do they have some kind of criteria where they say okay this is when we have to alert the public and in talking to most people about this it seems like the answer is no and that right that probably you know and I do sort of wonder like could they create something that would make it more clear and just help ensure then you could sort of judge like their level of transparency by that I think part of the problem is you know, every other things besides this in drugs are everything depends, right? Risk benefit is such a—it's um, more of an like I don't know if art is the right word, but it's it's not always like a, a as clear cut mathematical equation. Some of these decisions as we would like them to be, right? Mm-hmm. So like, is it possible to kind of for FDA or CDC to formalize those procedures of when it's appropriate to flag or not flag? Because like I, like I said, a number of people I talked to said they could see the argument for okay a signal is flagged you do that other other legwork to see whether it's something real and if the answer is no is there really a value of alerting the public um there are unique i think it seems like there are some unique dynamics in the vaccine space again because of those both like cdc fda authorities overlapping but also like the vaccine safety data link system that flagged this i guess is a CDC system, it's, you know, and they sort of have ownership of it. And people who work on that are probably very, like, invested in that and think, um, and they may have felt very strongly about what they found in their system. Um, and may see, you know, their system as sort of having different sort of benefits or perks compared to other safety systems. So it may have been a little bit of a, like, competing of heads of like whose safety system is the best and whose should you trust and believe, Um, which is a little bit, I think, unique with vaccines compared to, you know, the way we do drug safety surveillance in the U.S. I mean, the other thing I think you sort of started to allude to, Derek, is like in terms of COVID vaccines, a lot of this comes from your reporting, is that we've seen sort of this pattern of like FDA doing other quiet updates around vaccine, you know, safety issues. And, um, I think, you know, probably some of it is like, you know, this concern of like, right, not wanting to sort of unnecessarily scare people away from something where the benefit, you know, well outweighs the risk for most people, um, And you know they are in a difficult situation of how to handle it because there is that like there's this fraction of people in you know our country or this world that like no matter what you do with vaccines they're always going to find a way to spin it (laughs) in a negative way and use whatever they can to sort of try and um, beat anti-vaccine sentiment into people. So it is a big challenge. Again, I think I tend to um, think about it as like airing on the side of hiding information out of because of that fear of how one population will use it just I think sometimes ends up again backfiring because the people that are actually sort of more on your side and are you know in favor of the vaccines and sort of generally trust you start to get a little bit concerned um, when you sort of overthink (laughs) some of this communications.
0: At the same time, too, there's also and, you know, we, we forget about this, too, is that, you know, FDA and CDC are really big federal agencies. And we all hate the word, you know, bureaucracy is a four letter word. But, you know, when you're coming up and, and you know, we've seen this now because they the, um, the agency, the FDA has been releasing some of the a lot of the emails that we were going back and forth in 2020 when they were really at the height of the pandemic and trying to you know, doing various making uh, decisions, they go back and forth over and over again with HHS people and FDA people and various layers of FDA people. And I can't imagine if you throw in CDC, too, they've got all their layers and layers of people and lawyers and everybody else. And they're all, you know, if you're you're trying to put together some kind of statement or something, they're all making edits. And, it, you know, I, I read I read one email that said, yeah, I think it was finally saying like, okay, at some point we have to say pens down, that's enough because you would literally just edit forever and it would never get done. So, because there's just so many people looking at some of these things, you know, they have to have, they have to sign off on these things before they go out. So, you know, you, you would throw in that dynamic too. And I wouldn't be surprised if you just don't want, you know, there's people who are saying like, we don't want to involve, you know, we don't want to have like, uh, you know, a big major, you know, kind of public relations rollout on this because there would just be, you know, it would take you know, it would just take that much longer to get it done.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of understand your point and and then, um, right, I think like the perfect being the enemy of the good is is often a problem in situations, right, where you don't have always have clear deadlines and so forth. But I mean, I think there's a difference between like how much time even it would take for them to like hold a press conference or organize that. And even the, again, in this situation, they didn't just, you know, trigger their IT systems in a way to blast this out by email in a way you might blast out a lot of other safety events um, related to drugs. So I'm not sure that's like a, 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 a huge effort <laughs> um, on the part of the agency. Um but yeah, it is complicated, right, because we don't actually know exactly what was happening in the back room. We don't know, you know, you know who got to shape the, the precise wording on some of these <laughs> <laughs> announcements and how that impacted things. I mean, one of the things I noticed when I was even doing my reporting is at first I was like, wow, some of these headlines, you know, are really seem to be like fear-mongering over the stroke connection. And then when I actually looked more closely again at what CDC and FDA put out, well, like the actual headline on what CDC and FDA put out is also like kind of leads you in that direction too. And so it's only when you sort of more fully really read their full announcement that that you get to the, oh, possible link, but then really the um, main takeaway seems to be like, we saw a possible link, but we don't think it's real. And so some of it is just like, could would things have looked different if they wrote their headline differently? And why did they write that? And um, that way, and um, so there's just all these little, you know, decisions, and you know, that kind of impact how it gets translated to the public.
0: Yeah, the, the I, I know we, we and I've said this. I'm pretty sure I've said this before too. Over the last three years now, I mean, this is all fascinating for the academics. I'm sure, and they're going to be writing business cases and books and all kinds of stuff on how. You know how this was all handled, and what we can take away from kind of like what we learned from all this, and you know if we can you know see if we, if, if there's a way to do it better. It's it's just a you know a fascinating kind of ongoing uh, case study of in communications and in public health and everything else. So, next up is a look at the novel novel drug and biologic approvals in 2022. Bridget, you've been crunching the data, and it looks like some of the usual disease areas once again were at the top.
3: Yep. Uh, if if uh, there's one thing you can trust, it's that cancer will be the top therapeutic area. Um, and uh, it was it was again. Um, there were fewer in number of uh, novel oncology approvals last year than the year before, which is you know. In, in line with the just generally lower number of approvals this year, um, but the share of oncology uh, held held steady at about 30 uh, percent of FDA's <clears throat> novel approvals for the year. So, um, as I said, still still the dominant uh, category in terms of, of novel drugs. Um, uh, oncology is also the biggest area where the area with the highest number of percentage of uh, breakthrough approvals and orphan approvals and accelerated approvals. Um, you know the uh, the ex- expedited review p- uh, pathways have have really uh, been uh, I, I I think a a part of the the scaffold of the sort of explosion of oncology over the last couple couple of decades um, The within oncology, again, uh, immuno-oncology was uh, the big, big story. Um, This year, it uh, was not just about the PD-1 inhibitors. Um, In fact, the the PD-1 L1 class new agents were pretty much coming from uh, Chinese biotechs and are held up uh, by inspection issues. Um, So what we saw last year was uh, new categories within the immuno-oncology space, um, you know, some uh, 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 a number of, of firsts. Um, bristol myers um was the first new category of checkpoint inhibitor, uh, and um, AstraZeneca uh, introduced a CTLA-4 inhibitor to sort of, you know, parallel Bristol's Yervoy, and that's Imjudo. Um, uh, Immunocore got the first ever uh, T-cell receptor therapeutic uh, nod from FDA for, for KimTrack, which in a uh, preview of, of next week's story we will learn is the fastest approval of 2022 from Cedar. Um And then there are also a couple of bispecific uh, T-cell engaging antibodies, uh, Genentech's Linsumio, J&J's tech CBER um, uh, had uh, a, 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 ther- a new CAR-T therapy in, in carvicti from J&J. Um, and then also in one of the last approvals of the year, Pharyng's, uh adds stiladrin, um, which is uh, a, a gene therapy that is local. It's a non-replicating um, gene therapy uh, that uh, stimulates uh, production of interferon alpha to be in the bladder. Um, so and that's dosed every every three months and so it's a, a different model than the the CAR Ts obviously. Um, the uh, sort of polar opposite of um, immuno oncology would be the dermatology field, which uh, had um, a very a very good year in terms of, of of novel approvals in terms of novel approvals that. Um, are uh making making a splash um the big, some of the biggest uh it, it it's uh, biggest biggest markets that had uh, approvals um this year uh but um mostly standard reviews um in fact over in, in dermatology where where again things are you know very crowded in areas like uh plaque psoriasis um two first in class therapies were approved uh last year uh, Bristol's um TYK2 inhibitor uh that i cannot pronounce so tick to um, which is a uh, uh, taking uh taking a, a shot at amgen's uh o and oral therapy and then dermavant Um's vatama was the first uh, steroid free uh topical alternative for uh psoriasis in a while but um both of those while being being first in class got standard reviews um which again just sort of speaks to uh the the it, it's not an area with a lot of unmet medical need um but there's still a lot of uh commercial space and a lot of innovation going on um and uh it affects a lot of people uh dermatology is one of the lowest rates of orphan drug approvals of the major major categories if you look at uh neurology which is a, a perennial um or neuroscience sorry which is a, a perennial sort of second place um category the last few years, uh, there were, um, you know, a a number of approvals. It's it's the tied with with dermatology and uh, uh, for for second. Um, But uh, they were. um, Largely, uh, not largely, they're overwhelmingly from the neuroscience, neuro neurology end of the spectrum. There's only one new um, psychiatric drug. Uh, which is, however, an interesting one. It's uh, Marinus is. Uh, I'm sorry, it is not. <laughs> uh, but um, so, uh, but but again, you're looking at a lot of orphan neurology conditions. Um, 2022 managed to be the sort of gap between uh, 2021's Aduhelm story and 2023's Lekembe story and Donanimad story. Um, but no no Alzheimer's uh, last year. Um,
2: I'm glad you're able to get that category in, Bridget, even though there were no approvals, just by, by noting the gap. That was, uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um, and then uh, if you look at uh, infectious disease, which is, is very broad because I'm including here um, antibiotics, antivirals, antifungals, um, there were um, some some... Interesting uh, approvals here, but uh, what was uh, interesting in and in a bad way is that there were no novel antibiotics approved uh, last year, um, which is uh, not not great for the public health in general. Um, however, there were a couple of products for uh, people um, who, who who had who, who suffer from infectious diseases. Um, and uh, one, again, one of the last approvals of the year was um, uh rebiota from Seber, uh, which is the first fecal microbiome therapy to receive FDA approval, uh, which is important because this is a, a, a an approach to treating people who have um, C. difficile infection and to, to reduce recurrence that had uh, really sort of grown up um, in as sort of an unstandardized, uh, bespoke, industry um so getting something that is uh standardized and um has has good manufacturing oversight is is, is pretty significant um, and then uh, Fathom's Vokesna uh, actually earned a QIDP designation uh, despite um, not having a novel anti-infective in it because it, it's treating uh, H. pylori, the, the bacteria that is associated with stomach ulcers, um, but Vokesna's novel agent is the novel acid blocker. It's, it's combined with generic antibiotics. Um, and, uh, of course, there, there was a uh, COVID vaccine approval. Um, but uh, not for a major uh, contender in the the American race. Um, and then finally, I like to look at uh, blood disorders or, or non-malignant hematology, which is a mouthful. It was easier when it was called benign hematology. Um, but uh, the the non-malignant hematology um, is is really uh, a a Powerful contender when it comes to expedited review programs and novel agents, um, and uh, you know Sarah, Sarah, I think was mentioning before, uh, sort of the metrics of looking out at what Cedar posts on its its website, um, and uh, Cedar has a section on the website that is lists notable approvals for the year, um, and they had twelve that they they entered onto this list in 2022. Uh, only six of them were novel agents and three of the novel agents were blood disorder therapies, um, including uh, Sanofi's uh, Njamo, Agios' Pyrukind, I'm mispronouncing things, all over the place, um, and uh, CTI Biopharma's uh, Bonjo. And, uh, you, but um, again, you're looking at a lot of you know, non malignant hematology. It looks a lot like oncology in the way that… Um, you know, high levels of uh, breakthrough therapies, very high levels of orphan therapies, um, a lot of biologics, a lot of first in class agents. Um, And uh, I do want to point out that some of the most commercially successful uh, launches of of the last year actually came from um, areas that were not uh, particularly busy. and that would include uh, in um, Diabetes with uh, Manjaro, Lily's Manjaro and ophthal- Ophthalmology with um, Vibismo, uh, both of those products, which are, uh, you know, featured in um, our sister publication, Scripps, uh, coverage of the, the top launches of the year. Um, were ones where the companies chose to use priority review vouchers to uh, speed the approval of a product. Otherwise would have been been a standard approval, um, and that's uh, it, always an interesting decision to look at because it, it tends to signal that uh, the companies have very high hopes that they think that, you know, spending, you know, $100 million for a priority review voucher is worth it for the extra four months. Um, and uh, so uh, there were three uh, of the novel approvals in 2022, where the sponsor used a priority review voucher, they said that Manjaro Vibismo and then AstraZeneca's um, Imjudo, because when Imjudo uh, is combined with infinzi in their uh, pipeline, they in their what they offer, um, it gives them a nice a nice suite to to rival Bristol, um, and uh, yeah, it was it was a a. A quieter year than the last few, but uh, still with a lot of interesting approvals.
0: I, I wanted to ask you, I know one of the things that you mentioned in the story was that accelerated approvals crashed in 2022. Yes. <laughs> is, there um, any sense, is there any sense of why that happened? Is this backlash over Adjuhelm or the McKenna withdrawal? Is this the oncology division, you know, people worried about the oncology division, you know, pulling the dangling approvals and so forth? Approvals
3: there's there's definitely there were fewer accelerated approvals that had um, FDA decisions uh, in the in in the last year. Some of them were were um, complete response letters. Um, and then there were also FDA was very aggressive uh, last year with refuse to file letters um, and sort of convincing companies to pull uh, things because that it was obvious they were going to get a CRL. Um, you know, which I think also helped to to weed out some, some applications. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, just the environment has changed. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly the the uh, Denanomab decision um, uh, puts a nice exclamation point on that.
2: Well, Bridget, I, I uh, was going to say before Derek actually asked a good question was that you had uh, um, so thoroughly summarized everything in your uh, initial uh, description that you would uh, rob us of our ability to do follow-ups but I will uh, um, uh, uh, note that it was a, a great story and there are lots of uh, neat infographics to kind of uh, you know sort of have a uh, charge comparing uh, the uh, the various disease categories and, and their uh, um, metrics to uh, approvals overall and uh, um, it was just a, a, a very uh, lively summary of uh, what, was, what happened last year and uh, so uh,
0: thank you for that thank you yeah, it was really yeah. I always enjoy enjoy going through your your data and the and the charts and the trends and stuff. It's a yeah, really interesting thing.
3: It's it's a really uh, fun time of year for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Finally, we're going to discuss a new guidance on cancer drug dosing. Yeah, I can hear some of you out there rolling your eyes, but the ga- the guidance here comes as the FDA's cancer divisions are making a big push for reforms in this area. The Oncology Center of Excellence at the FDA wants to move away from so-called maximum tolerated dose, or MTD, in cancer trials, in part because of the safety concerns. The guidance is an attempt to encourage sponsors to do more thorough dosage characterization earlier in development. That includes randomized trials to compare multiple dosages and better assessments of tolerability. The dosing issues are uh, codified in OCE's Project Optimus. This guidance, also, this guidance even included formulation recommendations and said that the size and number of tablets required for an individual dose should be considered when selecting a final dosage form. It also said different dosages may be needed for different disease settings. And, and oh, by the way, since we were talking about expedited pathways a minute ago, the FDA said in this guidance that expedited pathway is not an excuse to not do the work. So for you all... Uh, I'm curious how you think industry might react to this. Um, uh, you know, obviously formal comments will be submitted in the coming weeks, but, you know, could we see some pushback on this because it means more upfront work and by extension more cost?
2: Well, I think you're certainly right that that's, uh, the, uh, the downside for, uh, um, industry. I think it's going to be, uh, hard to argue that, uh, no, 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 we, we need to understand less about our products before they, uh, <laughs> uh they reach, they reach patients. So, uh, um, you know, it, it will be curious to see what uh, what arguments uh, um, come forth. But it is part of a uh, um, a, a trend, as you were uh, um, noting with your accelerated approval question, is that there is um, uh, as uh, as dynamic and uh, productive as uh, um, oncology uh, development and review has been. There does seem to be a, uh, a pendulum swing taking place here, where, where the expectation is there's going to be a lot more um, done during the uh, the the study period. And, uh, um, uh, you know, I think uh, companies just have to address their plans accordingly.
0: Yeah, I know Dr. Califf likes to say that the, the FDA has to make decisions with the evidence they have, no matter how good it is, oftentimes. And, you know, they even though everyone would like 100% perfect certainty, you know, in, in some cases, you just don't have that. And, it looks like you know the, at least in the oncology space that they're looking for a little more of that certainty ahead of time as opposed, you know, in part because it can be done as opposed to you know some of the you know you know kind of some of the um you know larger issues with you know efficacy in large, large numbers of patients and and so forth. so yeah, this this could be a really interesting um, you know thing um, you know especially as it rolls out and and you could even see it feed into you know other clinical trial um, reform efforts um, you know that that uh, you know that we've been watching uh, you know in recent in recent months well that's all for this week for more check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com you can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes Google Play TuneIn SoundCloud and Spotify by searching for pharma intelligence and if you're so inclined feel free to give us a review Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Bridget Silverman, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.